Hello, Bookstube viewers. Now you get to see me reading, which you don't usually do. You usually see me talking and probably talking too much. But today I just want to read you a paragraph from a book by the author that we're going to be talking to today. The name of the book is Mourner's Bench, and the author is Sandaria Fay. And here's a paragraph. We washed clothes on Saturdays. Everybody helped, me, Esther, Granny, Medea, and my cousins who were big enough. We laid a board across two quilting horses, placed two number two wash tubs atop of the board, put a bar of lye soap in the bottom of one of them, filled a foot tub with water, boiled the water on the stove, poured boiling water into the tub to wash the clothes and cold water to rinse them. It took two people to carry the foot tub. We changed the wash water at least six times before all of the clothes were pinned to the wire clothesline. We washed the whites first. This is an amazing story. And now I'm going to introduce you to the woman who possibly lived some of it and certainly wrote all of it. Hello, Sandaria. I'm so happy to see you today. Hi. Hi, Eileen. Thank you for having me here. So now I'm going to take off my glasses and get into my talking <laughs> mode instead of my reading mode. Um, I read this book via a recommendation, and it just, it just blew me away. And so I'd like to introduce you to our audience and ask you to tell us about uh, the uh, mourner's, mourner's Bench, how much of it is based on your own childhood in Alabama, and how much of it is, is fiction? Hi, audience. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> that's a good question because, uh, and I'm from Ar it's, it's Arkansas. I'm from Arkansas. Arkansas, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, it, it's all relative, I guess. Uh, I am, the, the book, the premise of the book is uh, the, the character, Esther. The premise of that is somewhat based upon the fact that I knew that my mother was involved in the civil rights movement. I knew that she was an activist. I knew that she was the only one of her family members that, that, that did participate during the civil rights movement. And I knew that she had married one of the uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee organizers. So I knew those things. And there were a couple other things I knew that there were two young girls uh, in my book, there's Sarah and Malika, but there were two young girls who had taught people to read, who had worked at the community center to teach people to read, to register people to vote. And so these two young girls had gotten involved. So th that was what I knew. And then the rest of the book uh, developed from that. Well, developed is, um, is, is a low-key word for what happens in this book. First of all, there are four strong women, and I will just call Sarah a woman because she's an eight-year-old woman. One of the most impressive things in the book is how you maintain completely the voice of this eight-year-old girl uh, since the book is told from her perspective. How, how do you channel Sarah and keep that voice consistent? So I'm fortunate to be a writer that can hear voices. Like I could hear her voice as if she was talking to me. 
So that was one thing. But I'm also fortunate enough to have some nieces and, uh, and nephews around that age. So I would listen to children and how they talked. Uh, the other thing that I did was took a class of Voices of the 60s where we read plays. And so I, I tried to get the voice from there as well. The plays we read were not based in the South, so it wasn't completely accurate for what I needed. But I would go home regularly and hear people talk. Uh, it's amazing how far away you get from the vernacular of the, the Southern vernacular that I grew up with when I traveled throughout the world. So I would go home just to hear them talk. And the one thing that I tried to capture in the book is when everybody is talking at once. Like I grew up in a big family and you had to be really quick and to get <laughs> in and get out. And your story had to be worth telling because if it wasn't, then you get cut off then, or, or you get talked about and you were, you had to really be good at telling a story where, where I probably tried had to, to be loud. You probably had to be loud too, not only quick, but loud. Yeah, you had to get in and get out. If you didn't do it, I mean, it was perfect. It was timing. And I think there's a lot of timing in the book as well. Timing in the dialogue, pacing, everything. But yeah, you had to be quick. You get, you get in, you get your story in, and you get out. And especially if you were young, right? Because young people didn't really have that much of a voice. So you really had to get in. If you were at the table, dinner table, or, or any conversation, you just had to get in, get out and then wait for your next time, sort of like double dutch. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also, you had to have big ears, because I know at so many crucial points in the book, and there are many crucial points, Sarah is listening to adults who forget for the moment that uh, little pictures have big ears, and she's just absorbing everything that's said. And I love how she disappears to the adults, and then all of a sudden with a jolt, uh, they'll realize that she's there. Um, I, can you talk a little bit about the main female characters other than Sarah? Because there's four generations in this book, which is pretty remarkable anyway. Um, since you come from a big family, maybe uh, Esther, who is the mother, uh, Granny, who is the great-grandma, and Medea, which I meant be pronouncing incorrectly. No, you're correct. Um, is is the grandmother. So here they all are. Um, Esther leaves. She's an artist. Uh, she goes to Chicago, which is a pretty typical migration pattern for people from Arkansas. And uh, all Sarah has known is her two grandmothers. And basically, she kind of sees uh, Medea as her mom. And Granny's like her even more her kind of companion and support, and out pops her mom who returns. And at the beginning, Sarah really doesn't want to have that much to do with her because she's very happy with, with her life and the way it's going. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the three, three women? women? Yes, uh, I, lo I love all three of these women and I love how much alike and how different they are, all four. I think Sarah is a woman. Uh, as well in this book, because in many ways they treat her like as, as an adult because of the responsibilities she has. And the other thing that I wanted to do with Sarah was make her make her both uh, wise because of her responsibilities 
And then, but she's still a child, so she doesn't know everything that she's saying. Sometimes she's saying things that sounds like an adult, but we know that it's just a repeat of what she's heard uh, and not what she, she, she doesn't really understand uh, what's going on. One of the things I wrote is that uh, Miss Carrie Dilworth was told her that they would have to pick up the torch, her and Malika, and they actually thought about it as the Olympic torch and they were looking for it. <laughs> and so I thought like, so that was where, like those were places where I show her as adult responsibilities, but childlike behavior. And so that, that was hard to do, but I wanted her to be smart. I wanted, I wanted to show how a young girl may grow up in the South. And that's not untypical for a young girl in the South or boy to have responsibilities like Sarah did. And then uh, the Esther, the mother who went away, uh, and you mentioned it, the migration period. And so from the small town where they were from, there weren't any jobs, so she had to go away. But Sarah didn't understand that. She was a kid, so she had to go away. Many fam uh, young people left their families and went away to get jobs, sent money home. Some of them came back and retrieved their families. Some of them didn't. And so that was, uh, that was the time. And then Madea, uh, her character was interesting because she, when I first wrote her, she was just a church lady, someone who went to church, believed in the Bible, was um, very, cared a lot about what people thought about her, which the other women in the family did not. She wanted to follow the rules, and uh, which brings in Granny, her mother, and that is the reason she's that way, because Granny has a secret and something about her life that's very private is the reason why she's raised Maria the way that she to be the way that she is. But because of all of the things that are happening to Sarah, because of the times, 1964, um, this she can't, she can't, she won't, she will have to reveal that, and that doesn't go over as well as as I as some people may hope. I love the fact that there was a secret. Uh, because the evolution of the story, when uh, the 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 uh, title comes from Sarah being very eager to be baptized and to hear Jesus, because that's uh, what her the, been the focus of her life until Esther comes home. But Esther, her mother, kind of brings a different religion uh, into the household, and the religion is that of uh, gaining rights. Uh, getting a decent education, and having the absolute stranglehold that white people have over the lives of black people in the town, getting rid of that. And what comes through in the book is that laws can be passed from here till tomorrow, but if the culture does not change, and if that change isn't forced in a lot of cases, nothing does change, and one of the most remarkable parts of the book to me was when Sarah, Sarah's um, Medea, actually, this is amazing. So they, I read you the Saturday washing routine. She, every day except one day, she works in the fields for basically a white plantation owner. I mean, really, it was, it was that, even though maybe uh, it wasn't during uh, the Civil War, but it might as well have been for the way uh, people were treated. And then she comes home, takes off her field clothes, straps on an apron 
and her white uh, waitress shoes and goes and works at a cafe all night. So, I mean, not all night, but she worked. I've never seen... Until it closed. Yeah. I've never seen <laughs> women work, uh, anyone work like this. And there's an amazing part where Esther uh, waits outside because black people cannot be served in the cafe. It's owned by white people. So they're used to going in, to an outside window and being served through the window or the back door. And Esther just, she's been in Chicago. She, want, she, she has no patience for this. And she takes Sarah and they go in and they sit on stools in the cafe and ask for ice cream. And there's a, the sheriff is in there and there's just immediate resistance. Uh, so she's, she knows this isn't the place and time with Sarah there to, uh, to, to make the final stand. There'll be time for that later on. And her real goal is to get Sarah a decent education. So they leave. But um, what in the beginning, Esther, every character evolves. Sarah evolves from a girl who's focused on getting baptized to uh, a, a older girl who's focused on getting a decent education. Esther, when she starts out, starts out from a perspective of, I'm a believer in separate but equal, uh, which kind of shocked me because I never thought that black people would hold that middle ground. Uh, she felt as long as Sarah had a school that was just as good as the white school, there was no need to put kids together, probably because she'd seen what had been going on and what had proceeded in Little Rock and, and all, over, all over the South. So, okay, I'm talking too much. Um, <laughs> there is, because I love the book so much, but what I'd like you to do is read a portion to us where um, Sarah has uh, fallen in love with an outfit that she sees in the window of a white store. And if you want to uh, give some more background and then give us a reading, that would be great. Now, I'll, I'll just give you a little bit. You, know, you don't need to know much to see what happens to her. But she falls in love with this. She is going to the store for the first time to get clothes uh, from the store. Most of her clothes have been made hand-sewn or, or made at home. And so this is her first time having what she calls store-bought clothes. And so she's excited about it. She saved her money. Uh, the, the family has saved money to give to her to go to the store. So she sees, and, and also this store has been said that they will, uh, black people could come in, try on clothes and purchase clothes from that store, normal, like a normal person. And so Sarah sees this outfit. It's similar to one of the ones that her friend Malika has from uh, her travels to Chicago that she thinks that Malika's clothes are really nice. And then, uh, so she gets in the store and they take her down in the basement where the uh, where black people can purchase those clothes. And those clothes look very similar to the ones that she'd already been wearing. So Sarah throws a fit and runs out and says that she's not going to spend her money on those clothes. And I like that about her really. So where I'm gonna pick up is right when she runs out. And it's just, uh, she and Madea are in this scene, okay? She tried to hold the dress against my body. I pushed her hand away hard. She checked me with her eyes, but I was too far gone. I don't want any of these dresses. 
Don't act like that, Sarah, Maria said. These are good dresses. I don't want them. Let's go, Maria. I don't want them. I whispered so as not to embarrass her in front of the store clerk. Tell them, I said, insist on it. She placed her face in front of mine. We were nose to nose. You behave, she said. I won't make you buy it, but you can't change these folks' rules. We can protest. We can demand equality, I said. Esther would do it. I knew that would get that I knew that was a gut punch harder than the ones the police gave Rutherford. You getting beside yourself, young lady, she said. I could care two cents about what Esther would do. Come on, let's go. She reached for my hand. I pulled it away from her. She caught my arm. I jerked it away from her and ran upstairs. I didn't know where I was going. Maybe I'd go outside and pout, knowing that she would snatch a knot in my behind when she caught up to me. But as soon as the red and black outfit, the one like the display in the window caught my eye, I walked up to it, touched the hem of the skirt with my hand, and sat in the middle of the floor, Indian style. Maria and two white women reached me about the same time. Maria pulled on my crossed arms. She couldn't get me to unfold them. What is wrong with you, this girl, one of the white women said. Other white folks in the store came over to see what was going on. A colored girl is sitting in the middle of the aisle, I heard a white woman say. More and more people gathered. There were way more white people shopping upstairs than colored folks downstairs. Maria looked more helpless than the clerk at the library when me, Malika, and Rutherford did a sit-in. The white lady stared at me as if I were the three-headed man at the county fair. I began to sing, We Shall Overcome, quietly mostly, to calm my nerves. As more and more folks came to see the commotion and Maria pleaded with me, begged me to get up, I got more frightened than ever. Malika wasn't there to squeeze my hand or Rutherford to encourage me to demand my rights to shop in this store. Like anybody else, I didn't know what I was thinking, but this wasn't it. I was in knee deep now and couldn't turn back. Is that far enough? Oh, I, I wish you could read us the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, uh, can I ask one question, quick question? Has this uh -huh. been an audio book yet? No, it hasn't. And um, now I'm gonna leave the story for a minute, which is hard to do, and go on to okay. your story. So um, okay. this was published through the University of Arkansas Press, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So let's step back and um, go to your background uh, and what, what made you a writer, I guess. Well, I, I believe that I wrote a couple of stories when I was a kid. My, I remember Mrs. Carr, my literature uh, teacher, telling me that I should go into writing. And she thought maybe journalism because she liked my writing. But uh, my family wouldn't have that. They thought like um, writing books was something that like they said, you can't eat books. And I remember that distinctly, even though they don't remember it. Right. <laughs> so uh, so I majored in accounting and uh, I did something. I had brothers and sisters that also needed to go to college. So I would, I did, I took the safe career and I majored in accounting and I went on and had a very good career. I actually transferred into sales and marketing, uh, pharmaceutical sales, uh, computer sales. 
and, but I was always empty inside. And so it mm. seemed that every day that I would get off work or I was home, um, mm. the Oprah Winfrey show would be talking about filing your passion. And I, and I, my friends and I would question what, what, what was passion? We looked the definition up in the, um, in the dictionary, like what is passion? What would that mean to us? Because all of us were about the same age. We worked, we had good jobs, but we'd never considered being passionate about it. What do you really want to do? Is this what you want your life to be? And, uh, and that's what Oprah was preaching every day. And she showed people who had gone on to follow their passion, leave their jobs, travel the country. So um, one day my friend said, you don't know what your passion is. And I was like, no, no, I still haven't figured it out. And she said, it's writing. Every time I had also written sports, right? Like I've been a sports feature writer for athletes. And uh, when she said that, it just clicked. So I applied to Arizona State University for their MFA program in creative writing. And for some God reason, they accepted me. <laughs> uh, that, that piece I sent would not get accepted t today, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, they accepted me, one of, uh, six, uh, one of six students they accepted that year. So it was all about the, just watching the Oprah Winfrey show and figuring out what my passion was. I left a very lucrative uh, job to, uh, to follow that. And it took me a while to get to the place where I'm talking to you. So um, the, one of the other things I have to admit that caught my eye about Mourner's Bench is that right above your name and the title is a very nice endorsement from our very own Dennis Lehane, the author of Mystic River and uh, um, so many books that have been successfully made into films, but Gone Baby Gone. Um, but mostly he is known as a beloved a uh, local author made good who has really described the neighborhood of Dorchester in, in his Angie and Patrick mysteries to the rest of the world as Ben Affleck translated it in Gone Baby Gone. So uh, can uh -huh. you tell us a little bit about how uh, you and Dennis clicked so well? <laughs> I love Dennis Lehane and I think he is the best supporter of young writers and I mean young by people who come into the field. Um, and he has, he started in 2005, a writer's conference in St. Petersburg, Florida at Eckert College, which still continues to today, uh, usually mid-January. And so they started in 2005 and I was one of the first, um, first people to attend. And my out of my class, they have that, that year that I attended, uh, Many authors have gone on to publish book. Uh, Michael Carita was in my class. You probably may have heard of some of his books. But uh, I had spent some money. First, I had spent a lot of money getting the MFA. Then I had moved to Florida to write on the beach. And that some people should stop telling writers what to do or where they will find their muse because that's something that they have to figure out. Really not, uh, nobody can say, your muse might be in a closet. You just don't know. But it, it wasn't happening for me on the beach. And so I saw where this conference was going to be. So I call up the co-founder. Uh, first, I talked to the uh, organizer. And then she was like, well, let me l let you speak to one of the co-founders. Because I wanted to make sure that I was not going to be wasting my money, right? 
And uh, I mean, we spent a lot of money becoming a writer. And so uh, then it, uh, the, co the co-founder was Sterling Watson. And he said, I see you have some concerns. I understand. I'll put you in Dennis Lehane's class. Well, I didn't know Dennis Lehane. I'd been in school reading just literature. And it was right after Sean Penn had won the Oscar for Mystic River. So uh -huh. I should have known that, right? <laughs> so I was like, I was like, is he any good? You know, like, is, is he good? Is Dennis Lehane any good? <laughs> and he was like, well, I tell you what, if you don't like him, it was a 10-day conference. If you don't like him, uh, we'll give you your money back. I'll, I'll just say that. This is our first year. And I was like, okay, that's cool, right? So I get to class, and Dennis comes in, and I introduce myself. And he's like, oh, so you're the person who thinks you got, she's going to get her money back. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> So I was like totally embarrassed, but he is, he's just that kind of person. I think he's one of the best uh, people that I've had to teach me writing. And I, I would say that a lot of what I learned from that conference is why I'm here today. And he actually asked me to blurb the book. That's, that's the type of person um, that he is. He had to ask me three, four times before I understood because that's what you're looking to get published. You don't even know that you need a blurb as well. So he was like, would you like for me to blurb your book? And by the time that he, uh, I understood what he was saying, he's like, um, well, if you don't want me to, Sandria, I was like, oh yeah, sure, sure, please do. <laughs> but he has been a bit, huge supporter of mine and I, I really do appreciate it. I think he's a fantastic writer and I probably love him as much as you people do in Boston. Well, um, I'm pleased that someone whose writing I enjoy so much uh, appreciates him and he appreciates you. So it's just a big circle of appreciation. So right. um, how did your family feel about the book? Did you give them a chance to read it in advance before it was published? Only the advanced reader copy. So it's published by then. Uh, when I, no, no, not even advanced reader copies, because I, what the press or myself didn't expect is that people would have such interest in this book. And so I never got the advanced reader's copy. So I was like, you got to give me something so I can take home, right? And I finally got the books in uh, once, once they were going out to everybody else. And um, I took it home. I drove home and gave a copy to my mom. And, and to other members of my family. And I thought like, well, they are probably either not gonna read it or it's gonna take a long time. But about a week later, my mother called me back and she asked me how she loved the book. A couple of things she thought, like every time she was wondering when I was gonna solve a problem, it was the, the next chapter she found that she found what she was looking for. But she really identified with the character, which I didn't know she would because my mother did not talk about her activism. And through my research, I realized that in 1964, women were not supposed to be in leadership roles. Hmm. And many women who worked in the civil rights movement were in leadership roles. And so I will be happy when I start to see other people write about those women. And, um, and so she said, asked me, how did I know what she was feeling? Oh. Uh, what she could have been feeling. It must have been a revelation. And so that made me very happy uh, about the book because 
I've, I've always been the good daughter. I didn't want to disappoint them, you know, or write something that they would hate or not be not being respectful to her or my ancestors or, or my culture or anything like that. Well, if anything, it's I, to me, it's that just touches my heart that your mother felt that you got her so well. And uh, do you have any grandmoms who's, who are still alive to have read the book or know about the book? No, I was fortunate, and, and I guess that's the reason why I wrote Four Generations. I was fortunate enough to have my great-grandparents on both my mother and my father's side. So I grew up a really spoiled girl. I don't know how I'm so <laughs> nice now. But, uh, but I did. I had both, uh, both great-grandparents. So it was common to me. And I remember my great-grandmother lived to be 96, 97 years old, as far as we could tell, because she didn't have birth certificate or anything. And so uh, I, I just remember two things. I wanted her to keep getting older so somebody could have a baby, and we would have five generations, which is rare. <laughs> and I wanted her to, uh, Al Roker, to announce her name on, uh, on the Today Show of Turning 100. But she lived to be about 97, I think. Well, uh, I think 95 is certainly worthy of an announcement, but I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad you had great-grandparents. What, uh, I can't think of, hardly think of something that would enrich your life more than to have, have people around who lived through the worst and lived uh, through better times. What's, uh, what's on your schedule next? Now, um, I, I wanted to talk about the award you've been nominated for which um, it's named after uh, two very famous African-American authors. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I am so excited about this award. I wasn't at first, you know, because I guess it had to dawn on me that, oh, this book has really been nominated for an award, right? That's like, wow. But not only because, uh, not the content, but it is from a small press. And so I didn't think anybody would ever pay that much attention to this book. But I'm very honored. It's the oldest uh, award given to uh, African-Americans and people of color uh, in the United States. And so to be uh, nominated with my peers, uh, it's, it's more than I can express. I don't, I don't have the words for it yet. And because it's October 21st when I find out, I, uh, I'm starting to get a little anxious about it. At first it was like, oh, I'm just happy to be nominated. But it's uh, Hurston Wright, Zora Neale Hurston. And it's, so it's called the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Uh, that night, uh, Ernest Gaines, who is a hero of mine, ah. uh, and uh, Juno Diaz will receive honorary awards. And then uh, there's a category for debut fiction, for fiction, for nonfiction and poetry. So, um, I am so excited to be among these uh, great writers. I think the best writers, I believe, in the United States, and they, inc they included me as well. So I can't wait. And also, I mean, to uh, be amongst, to, be, to have an award or even be nominated for an award that uh, is named after Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright, I mean, you can't, it's hard to find uh, more important writers. Um, I think. You're in. I think you hope. I hope you will win. I think you should. I think this is just an extraordinary book. What's What's next? 
Well, I'm, and, and let me just say this too. Uh, Zora Hurston wrote uh, vernacular language and vernacular culture. And so uh, that also gave me permission to do that. Um, my vernacular isn't as strong as hers, but I was, I was able to use the Southern black vernacular uh, culture in my writing, I mean, language in my writing. But uh, so the, I'm working on two projects. One of them is really different. Uh, 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 a poet and I are working on what they call a movie book. We're gonna, it's gonna be the first time so what you'll get is uh, you'll see the movie, and then uh, I think it would be like something you could do, watch on Kindle or something like that. So while you're while you're watching the movie, it will fade out into the prose. Wow! And um, and the story is very uh, accommodating for this type of, of of book because it's odd as well. Uh, the story is it's set in uh, Honduras. And so mm -hmm. it's a different type of story with mysticism and all of that superstitions. And so we will, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about that. It's different because it's one thing when the plot has to work uh, or the story has to work from chapter to chapter, but now we have to make this work not only from chapter to chapter, but from film to chapter. All right, well, let me interrupt you there for a minute because I forgot to mention one also really important honor that you have had. Now, we all know um, how remarkable it was when Beyonce released um, oh. Lemonade. And you are in, there's a booklet that accompanies uh, it, and you are listed among your book, Mourner's Bench, and as an author, you are listed among recommended fiction writers and I was I saw that on your website and I I got shivers I'm like whoa I hope that Beyonce has had a chance to read this book but that must have also that must be very exciting I never in my life thought that my name would be in uh listed and uh with along beside Beyonce's under any condition <laughs> I'm not even in that age range but for her uh her uh Lemonade CD, uh, they, some scholars put together a list of books, not just fiction, but nonfiction and uh, scholarly books and everything to read alongside listening to that uh, CD. And they, when I found out that they had included my book, I was blown away. So I bet, uh, I bet your nieces I, and nephews and everyone in your family who's younger than you were like, right. ee, woo, auntie, yeah, like, auntie, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> like now we want to read that book. Right. Uh, yeah. Now what? It's it's part of that. Let's let's see what's going on. And I can see why they would do that because of the strong women in this in in the novel. And uh, uh, also, I'm sorry, I did interrupt you about your other project. So can you tell us yeah, about that? I was, I was just going to say one other thing too. Uh, Books in Common. Uh, they uh, it's a speakers bureau for colleges and uh, libraries. So they just added me to their speakers bureau. So please go out and I'll come and talk to you guys like I'm talking to uh, Eileen here. But the other project that, which is my next novel, is a novel set in rural Arkansas. Uh, I guess I will always write about Arkansas, right? Nobody else is. But uh, it's set in a town uh, titled, uh, called Napoleon, Arkansas. And it was uh, the county seat back in the 1800s. 
but it uh, it vanished. Uh, what Mark Twain, when Mark Twain wrote about it in his uh, memoirs, uh, he said is uh, sleeping with the fishes. Uh, so anyway, it vanished into the river. And even today, you can only get there by plane and then by boat. So it is underwater. So I, um, I just want to know, like, just write in about uh, one woman who, uh, who was not there when the, uh, when the, when the town vanished. So she's a, she's a person that's left from this town that's telling the stories of this town. Well, that's and there's a, mysticism and superstition in that as well. That's interesting on at least two levels. One, because of global warming and climate change and what it's doing to any, any area that's susceptible to water, but also because here in Massachusetts, um, the Quabbin Reservoir, which is a very large reservoir in the middle of the state, was created by drowning, I think it was five or six towns that no longer exist. So that'll uh -huh. be as if you, this book and your writing wasn't enough to interest us. <laughs> uh, this your new your new novel will add to it. So they're uh, telling me we have to wrap up, and of course I'm okay. sad because we could speak all day. But I want to thank you so much for joining us. We had some technical difficulties, we overcame them, and tell you how much I'll be watching for the award results, and uh, I'd love to stay in touch with you and hear how everything's going. So, Sandaria, thank you so, so, so much for joining me on Books Do. Thank you. And may I just say where to find me is at sandariafay.com, and also I'm on Facebook and Twitter under the same name, Sandaria Fay. Okay, so I'll go out up, and get the book so you can join the conversation with us. Excellent, and I'll put on, um, I'll put that information up so that readers can follow it. Thanks so much, and have a great Thank day. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was very nice talking to you. Bye bye. Bye.